We don't need to replicate what the people in the U.S. are doing or the people in the U.K. or Germany. We can do venture capital. We should do venture capital in our own like Latin American ways. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the TAM Venture Capital Podcast. My name is Fernanda Sesto. I created this podcast because I want to empower potential investors with insights into LATAM's thriving landscape and also guide Latin American entrepreneurs through the intricacies of US VC dynamics. I interview investors and entrepreneurs to learn more about their career backgrounds, market thoughts, and provide guidance to anyone who's interested in investing in Latin America. Hernan has been part of the Argentinian entrepreneurial scene for almost two decades, and he's connected with the Silicon Valley since 2008. He's an experienced operator that knows what it takes to build a scalable business, a startup advisor, mentor at the Buenos Aires chapter of Singularity University, and also at the Founder Institute. He's currently living in Uruguay and is the general partner of Mr. Pink VC, an early stage venture fund invested in Colombia, Argentina, Peru, Uruguay, and Chile. He also holds an MBA from UC Berkeley. Hi, Hernan. How are you? Good, Fernanda. Happy to be talking with you. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, we're excited about talking with you, especially given your background and what you've done so far. So can you just give me a quick introduction about yourself and what you're doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Hernan. I was born and raised in Argentina. I got involved in technology when I was like super young. Um, before the dot-com crash, I was in part of the development of some of the startups in, in Argentina, product manager. Then around 2008, I decided I, I really wanted to get deep into the, the entrepreneurial scene, which was non-existent in South America at the time. So the way I... I went about it was I applied to business schools in the US. I moved to California. I got my MBA at UC Berkeley. I started a few companies there. Um, most failed, as it's usually the case, but one ended up being acquired uh, in, 2004, in two, yeah, 2014. So and then I stepped down from that one and, and began and joined another. Uh, Another startup based in the U.S. called Consumer Affairs. I worked there for a few years, different roles. Until I stepped down, I decided I wanted to try something different, and that something different ended up being Mr. Pink, which is the fund I'm running right now. Awesome. Perfect. That You had such a journey from, you know, MBA, like working in Argentina, working in the U.S., starting companies. Um, that That's very exciting and definitely it seems like you're very passionate about entrepreneurship and and you know supporting supporting founders and, and technology. So that's very cool. So yeah, I would love to know more about uh how Mr. Prank was created and the process of starting it. Specifically, I would love to learn more about how you went about fundraising and what were some of the challenges that you had. Yeah, raising a fund in Latin America is Raising a fund everywhere, I would say it's very challenging in Latin America or in any emerging market. It's it's really, really tough because most of the investors are not familiar with the asset class. They don't know much about VC. So it takes a lot of education. Um, there are one, one way to think about the LPs, the limited partners in, in a fund is there are different classes. Um, in uh, more advanced markets, 
you have institutional investors, which tend to be the pension funds or the insurance companies. And in Latin America, they are not allowed by regulation to deploy capital in venture capital. So those are off the picture, right? Um, then there are some uh, multilateral uh, entities like the IFC, like the uh, IDB, uh, and a few others. There is CAF, CAF in, as well. But there are maybe four or five players that you can try to get into your 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 fund. But most of them, they, they will ask for a track record. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. You, you can't raise unless you have a track record, but it's hard to have a track record unless you raise some money. Um, so some people, the ones that have the the financial capacity to do so, they start like invest, angel investing for a few years, and then you, you go to to these sophisticated piece and you, you have something to show. But even if you do that, it's not the same. It's not the same being an angel investor than running a fund. Um, and after that, which is what I really did, because before I started fundraising, I, I made maybe two angel investments, not much. And I did those before deciding to get the fund, so it was not part of, a, of, of the plan, right? Um, so what I did is I just talk with, started talking to to the people that was closer to me, other entrepreneurs, yeah. my former investor from the US. And then you start like networking and going like crazy, like knocking on doors and, and and asking for introductions. And the people that are usually more eager to invest in a first-time manager like myself are other entrepreneurs, um, other investors that have known you maybe for, for several years. Uh, like former investors in the companies I, I exit. Um, and then you have the what what's called the high net worth individuals, right? People with a lot of money that can write a 50K check, a 100K check, or, or bigger than that. And it's still a small percent uh, of their total net worth, so they can consider that uh, an exploratory investment. So they can write a small check in a new manager, just to learn and get to know you and hopefully write a significant uh, check a few years down when you have some results on your first fund. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like the element of trust is really important when you're a first-time fund manager. Uh, and I mean, venture capital is very relationship-driven, so it makes sense that, you know, when, like, you think about LPs and, like, you know, especially when you're fundraising with people that are like individuals, like entrepreneurs or former investors or high net worth individuals, uh, trust and like building those relationships, I think are, is like essential, right? Like, um, I guess like, I'm just curious right now, how did you go about starting those relationships? Like, how did you go about building that network? Which I think is a struggle for a lot of people, especially in Latin America, which networking maybe is not, something that we are used to do very often. I think networking is something that in the United States at least is spoken very often, but at least in Uruguay, I don't think so as much, right? Yeah, totally agree. In Latin America, we don't have this 
the, the American concept of, of networking. Of go and talk with random strangers just in hope that something good may occur down the road. We don't really do that. We don't, don't do a lot of that. Um, so, so first rule of fundraising is everyone, every single person you know needs to know that you are fundraising. Even if they don't really understand much about what you do at the venture capital fund or anything, everyone should know and you need to like talk with a lot of people um, and move fast, I would say. Like you're not gonna fundraise from someone that you need, I don't know, to explain everything from the get-go about why they should invest in, in a partner manager or in venture capital or why building an ecosystem in South America is important. When you don't have these like track record, the best way to, to really generate trust or build trust is to be authentic. That's what I found. Like for me, I, I learned and I am an introvert. I recovered introvert, I used to say. Um, I found that I, I can build rapport with a total stranger in like two minutes over a Zoom call. And I have fundraised from, from Germany, from Italy, from Spain, from Thailand, uh, Canada, the US, and, and a few other countries. And each one has a, it's one of these LPs, the way I connected with them, has a very particular and, and strange story behind, right? It's someone that thought that maybe it was not a good fit for them, but they knew someone that somehow was connected with the region in which I invest, which I call like Kapuk. Um, and, and then I talked with, with that person that maybe introduced me to someone else. And it's very unpredictable. So you need to go into this meeting with an open mind, um, not being pushy, taking your time. No one is going to write a check to a stranger in a first call. Sometimes it takes months. Um, you need to be persistent. You need to learn not to be afraid of following up on people. I remember... Yeah. It, 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 I'm going to wrap up in a moment, but this is a great story. I think it shows a lot of this. Like I, I found this guy um, from Switzerland mm -hmm. in LinkedIn. He posted something about I don't know about venture capital or something like that. I reach out to this person like over LinkedIn. Hey, let's talk. So yeah. we started talking, and. Ended up being the case that he was friend with a friend of mine, like oh. out of the bloom. Yeah. And this person introduced me to this Italian living in uh, living in Saudi Arabia or Australia at the time. I'm not even sure he travels a lot. Uh, so I, I talked with the guy, and he was interested. He was going to write a sizable check for my font size, and we were talking. We had a few conversations. Everything seemed to be fine, and suddenly he disappears. And I tracked him down. And as an introvert, for me, it's hard to follow up on people and say, "Hey, do you have time to talk? What happened? We had to cancel the last conversation and keep pushing, pushing, pushing." And when we finally got to talk, 
I looked behind, it was a video conference, and I looked behind this guy on his back. He had like a whiteboard and a post-it note that said Mr. Pink. So for him, he never forgot about this. Yeah. I was on his pending iron list. I, I, actually, he had already decided that he was going to invest. I didn't. I, I just didn't know about that. So you need to remain optimistic, even though it's super hard. Even if someone disappears, it doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't want to invest in you. It's, it's like life happens. People get sick. People have to travel. They have other urgencies. So you just need to keep pushing. Mm, yeah, not taking things personally, maybe. <laughs> Um, definitely not learn not to take things personally otherwise you're going to be very depressed yeah <laughs> yeah that's very interesting well thank you for sharing that um, yeah I'd love to learn more about what you do with Mr. Pink specifically your thesis as you mentioned you invest in Colombia, Argentina, Peru, Uruguay and Chile what you call Capuc so what is it about these markets that attracted you to invest and center your fund um, around them Sure. So it happens pretty organically in some ways. As I mentioned, I'm originally from Argentina. Um, I, I lived some time in the US. I, I lived after the MBA. I lived for a year and a half in Chile. And before that, I lived over around half a year in Colombia. And I live in Uruguay right now. And what I found about these five countries is that we are we're pretty much the same, right? When you think about, for instance, the, the European Union, mm-hmm. it's amazing that the Italians, the Germans, the French, and the, the people from Spain, they, they found a way to work together, even though they have very different and sometimes almost opposed like cultures in some ways. Right and different languages, yeah. and we are so similar, um, but we fail to see ourselves as a cluster, right? And the other thing I noticed is that out of the when the time in which I started thinking about this was in 2020 when we were in a lockdown and venture capital was booming in Latin America 2020-2021, um, but. Besides all that, besides all the fantastic talent, that talent is everywhere, right? That's one one of my like, main like core beliefs. You need you are not smarter because you were born in Palo Alto, actually, as a running show. Like no one is like born there. It's, yeah, it's all people that move from somewhere else, right? Um, but out of each dollar invested in Latin America, half of that goes to Brazil, and around the quarter goes to Mexico. And I thought there is this amazing like second tier cluster that is totally underserved, mm-hmm. right? And besides that, I I I, I have had the opportunity to work for a US uh, startups for many years, and we did that with teams based in Argentina, in Chile, in Mexico, and and I know for a fact that the, the quality of the human resources here is it's the same. Right, it's the same. There are some attitudes that are different because we are not that used to like doing like business and fundraising and being maybe more assertive or more aggressive in some ways in terms of our, our ambition uh, as as the Americans are. 
But those are the things that you can learn and you can also do venture capital. In, um, we don't need to replicate what, what, what the people in the US are doing or the people in the UK or Germany. We can do venture capital. We should do venture capital in our own like Latin American ways. Mm -hmm. So what I thought to myself is let's leverage this experience you had as an entrepreneur in the US, in, mainly in California, and bring that to South America, to these Kapuk countries, where no one is paying a lot of attention, where there is a lot of need, when you can have a bigger impact. And when you have a very tight thesis, you have something more interesting to tell to your perspective piece, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easy for them as well to know if Mr. Pink is interesting for them or not, right? If they don't want exposure, if they want fintech, I don't do fintech, so it, I'm not your fund. If you want to invest in Brazil, I don't do Brazil, so this is not your fund. So it, it's quite easy for people to, to self-select on whether they can be potentially LP or not, and also for your network to introduce you to people that they believe may be interested in, in your fund. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting, especially it decentralizes a little bit the um, capital from Brazil and Mexico, which are, you know, the biggest markets, as, as you were saying. And um, it shows in a way, you know, if this like if this investments actually turn out to be good, like it shows that there is potential in the region and it kind of like sets the record also for future venture funds or LPs to start investing and being attracted. And, you know, like Argentina, like, in Colombia, they had they've had like unicorns already. Uruguay, we already have a unicorn too now. Pretty proud, the local. Um, but so there is like in Chile as well. I, I don't actually remember how many Chile has, but I think there's like at least one. But I, I think that's that's a it's starting to set a track record for for those markets as well. I'm actually kind of curious right now as well. Um, what was the story behind the name of the fund, Mister Pink? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so the, the name is taken out of a Quentin Tarantino movie called uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Right? There is a character there that is called Mr. Pink, and and he was part of a group of uh, mafia guys, right? The mobs, and and they had imagine very like typical like Italian mobs. Um, like hard, like men, aggressive, very um, self-confident, and and the the boss started like putting like code nicknames, and they, they were they everyone had had a different color. So there was like Mister Black, Mister Brown, Mister Blue, and suddenly they get to the guy and they say, "And you're Mister Pink." And of course, the guy was like furious. He no one wanted to be Mister Pink because. As a culture, we associate pink with, with female and female with weakness. Um, and at, at the end, like long story short, he's the only guy that remains like alive at the end of the movie, oh, right? So why 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 I decided to pick that, right? Because that that's just the character. But why I decided to pick that for my phone? And the reason is first. I believe that my fund strategy and the type of entrepreneur that I, I am I'm catering to is very 
very particular. I'm not looking for the Ivy League um, high-class entrepreneur, right? Not necessarily, nothing against those guys, right? That's fine. But I'm much more excited about investing in underdogs. And that was what Mr. Pink was, right? No one wanted to be Mr. Pink. I'm all about diversity. I strongly believe that there are smart people everywhere, in everywhere literally in, in the world, like where 8 billion people were all connected or not all connected, but vast majority of the of the population is connected to the internet. Everyone can read from like Steve Blank or, or Eric Ries or whoever you want, uh, Paul Graham, you name it, you have it. Uh, listen to the best like lecture from MIT. And it's not about the access to information and the more scarce resource is talented humans that are motivated, that are passionate, that are willing to learn to take risks. Um, those people are scattered everywhere. Um, yeah. And I, I, I wanna bring the, the venture capital model and the process and the capital from abroad into this region. Uh, so it's all about diversity. Diversity is an integral part of my fund and my core beliefs as a human being. So I thought Mr. Pink it combines these masculine and feminine like qualities, mm-hmm. and it keeps out this idea of of diversity in the name itself. And as you can probably see by what we've been talking so far and what we've talked in the past, like the way I approach venture capital is pretty unique, right? Not necessarily better, but I would say different than the status quo of VCs, definitely in Latin America. And I wanted a name that did not sound like other VCs. I didn't want to be like 10X return fund or something like that. So I wanted a name that by design, did not sound like traditional VC names because this is not a traditional venture capital fund. Mm, I see. That's a good story. I like it. Uh, definitely, you know, like encapsulates what your thesis is and also adds a little bit of personality to which, you know, it's very important <laughs> in the industry. Yeah. So that, that's fun. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about this, about, you know, decentralizing capital, bringing more to Latin America, approaching founders differently and working with different types of founders, not like the most popular archetype of uh, entrepreneur. I'm very curious about this. So, you know, there's a lot of disparity in Latin America when it comes to fundraising as an entrepreneur, as a fund manager, and a lot of the capital is centralized in the U.S. and it's harder for founders who don't have access to the resources like, you know, going to a college in the U.S., so what do you think will change that in the future? I know probably the work you're doing already like is like, you know, trying to change that, but what do you think else needs to happen in order to for that to change or start changing it more, I guess? Yeah. That that's a tough question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So first I I, I would say the the venture capital industry is changing and becoming more scientific, which is which is good because um, its diversity is a, is a competitive advantage, 
right? They were, we need to start like really understanding that diversity is not an ethical, um, an ethical statement. Besides, besides being good, right? The diversity is, is good business. Um, and some of the 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 typical claims about where do the best entrepreneurs come from are really self-fulfilling prophecy. I was looking, there was this post in LinkedIn uh, just yesterday, and they were showing, I think it was something along the lines of 40-something percent of the VCs that are uh, HBS, Harvard Business School graduates, invest in, in other Harvard Business School graduates. It yeah. was really... Let me rephrase that. Forty-two percent, I think it was the number of the money deployed by Harvard Business School GPs funds yeah. went to startups that at least had one HBS entrepreneur. Right? It's a big coincidence, right? It makes you think a little bit, and and, and this is very tricky because the self-fulfilling prophecy. It actually works to some extent, right? Because everyone believes that because you are, you know, three white guys from Stanford or, or HBS, that you are going to have it easier. And the reality is you have it easier. So you raise money. And the number one requirement for building a big startup is don't go bankruptcy. And startups don't, don't fail because of a deficiency on the PL. Like no one goes bankruptcy because of negative EBITDA, right? It's because of cash flow. So the more money you raise, then you have the FOMO effect and people want to join and you have more time to build something and that opens up new doors and so on and so forth. But the reality is that the market is very efficient and these guys are raising maybe without without even an MVP, they raise at a $10 million valuation. They may raise a pre-seed of that. I'm, I'm absolutely positive you're better served by investing that in, I don't know, five or eight startups from no-name business school, right? But with people that are like super passionate and are well prepared and are willing to work even harder, right? Because, because they know that they are not going to have like two other funds waiting for them after they have failed with the first startup, mm. right? So it, it's hard to unsee what seems to be working because for the moment it, it works and you have enough cases to compare against, right? But the a lot of people bringing a more scientific view into the venture capital are starting to understand this. And for instance, the fund of funds, there are many fund of funds that now see this and they want to deploy capital on emerging mar managers because emerging managers usually outperform our bigger funds. Mm -hmm. And they outperform for the same reasons than uh, no-name like graduates can outperform sometimes the the big like uh, school school names. And it's because you have you don't have like five bullets, you have one bullet, right? Yeah. myself like if I, if I don't deliver good returns from my first fund I'm not going to raise a second fund 
right? Yeah. Um, there is a fund that I really like in the US. I think it's something along the lines of one-way ticket. It's not like that, but they invest on immigrants. And the mm -hmm. idea is you're an immigrant, you're right to the US. Not everyone is willing to give you money. I'm going to give you money and you're going to be willing to work like super hard because you know that this is your chance. You don't want to be the immigrant that got to the US, received some money and totally failed in six months. They're going to work super hard. This is your chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really good case. Um, And then also, you know, I mean, I guess like what people would traditionally say is that to get to Harvard or to Stanford, to all these Ivy League schools that give you some sort of credential or start at like, I don't know, McKinsey, like all these big companies as well, uh, Google, Microsoft, etc. Like you have to have certain, like, because they serve as filters, right? Like they, they're so big, they have so many requirements, so many interview processes and stuff like in it kind of shows the value of the students or the people who are working there. And that serves as the filter for these people. But I think that sometimes like the process to get to these schools or these companies is already flawed. Like there are already people who are like lower income or have, you know, less resources that cannot access because they can access to these opportunities because they need to work uh, when they're students, for example. Right. So then you'll have less time to prepare for the SATs and all the exams that you need to take. You know, so like there's a, a lot like that goes to, to that. So using the school or the company that you used to work for as a, a parameter of success as an entrepreneur, I think is not really valid because the process of getting there, I know it's tough and I'm not saying that people who work, who got into the schools didn't work hard, but sometimes it is more convenient if you had more support, you know, from your family or whatever. So I don't know. I just, yeah, I agree with you on that. And definitely, you know, I'm very pro like data-driven VCs and like they're proving those things. Like the, the data is biased per se, but there are like, the, the, it's a correlation and this is not necessarily a causation of like, in, and I, I don't know. I just really like that. Yeah. No, no, I 100% agree with you. I'm, there are studies like the GMAT, which is one of the tests, standardized tests usually taken for applying for U.S. Uh, MBAs, I think the I, I'm just making up the numbers, but 20 years ago, maybe the average like GMAT score was, I don't know, 150. Mm -hmm. And now the average is 750. Are people now, are MBA applicants now smarter than 20 years ago? Heck no. It's the same. The preparation improved and the preparation cost money. Yeah. Right? Um, I remember when I was applying to business school, I did uh, all my essays myself, which if you're not familiar with business school <laughs> application process, you would say, yeah, of course, you did your, your application yourself. What I found out after the fact is that most people, at least in Argentina, where I'm more familiar with, they have essay coaches that will help you craft your, your story and improve your grammar, make it more compelling, and that they know what the admission people are looking for. So so in, at the end of the day, of course, these are, for the most part, like super smart people, but the people that are left behind because they, they couldn't pay for the preparation or they don't have the money to apply or to, to spend like two years in the US right, without an income, 
many of them are are are, are even smarter, right? Yeah. Uh, so so I don't think, as you said, it, it's correlation. There must be some correlation. But why? Just to give you an example, what I try to do in Mr. Ping, in my fund, we do we use different like personality tests. For instance, you use uh, one called Principles You that was created by Ray Dalio. Right. I, 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 in my experience as an entrepreneur, I've used a lot of uh, NPL, and the one I really like the most is the Meyer Briggs, the MBTI. Yeah. So those are useful tools that go to the core of your essence and your personality and and the ways you are. Right. Just I always say I'm, and I'm saying all this, and I'm a Berkeley MBA graduate. That's of 2010. I'm very grateful for for Berkeley. It was amazing. But it going through Berkeley did not make me more resilient mm-hmm. or smarter or anything. I was the same guy, like one day before being accepted and one day after graduation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very good reflection, I think. And a lot of people need to hear it. <laughs> um, so last question is, what is some advice that you would give people who are listening um you know if you remember anything that someone gave you before and like to share or if you have any for for us yeah so i would say try not to overthink things too much it's hard i have a tendency to do a lot of like thinking and and when you think a lot uh, basically, they, deep, deep below, you're running under the assumption that if you run all the numbers, you will find what the best outcome is. But the world is much more complex than that. In most cases, you, you never know. It's impossible to run all, all, the, all this path. And I think maybe borrowing from the M- MVP ideas, just experiment more, like take more risks, rational risks, right? Don't, don't, Bet all your money on on a horse's race, but take risks and, and and don't be so dramatic. Just just accept like failure and experimentation as a way of life, yeah. and take your chances, and try not to think too much about what if kind of things because the contrafactical you can never test that. Right? People say, "Hey, what if I have." Going to a different school, or what if I had quit my shop sooner, or never quit? It, that that's not that's not good. That's not going to be have a positive impact on your mental health. That's going to make you more stressed, right? Just try to enjoy life, find something that that you're passionate about, and go with it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. Thank you, Hernan. Uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This, this was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, have a good day. Bye-bye. I think this episode is super interesting because I think we haven't really talked about the social dynamics playing a role into the venture landscape in Latin America. And I really admire the work that Hernan has been doing 
by really trying to connect with founders in a way that maybe others don't by understanding that sometimes privilege has a, a very big impact on the the resources that certain founders and also other investors have. And also I like that he acknowledges that he does have certain privilege by having been able to go to go to to Berkeley to do his MBA and having access to that um network as well. And and that he's trying to decentralize the capital in Latin America. As we know, Brazil and Mexico, the biggest markets. And he's trying to, to move the capital from those places to other places as well, um, which have great founders like Uruguay, Argentina. I hope that you enjoy this episode and come back next week for more.